I'm David Flaherty, Marketing Director for Washington Wine. This is Somlight. Somlight is a conversation series where we talk to some of our favorite wine pros from around the country, talk a little bit of shop, but more importantly, find out what makes them human, what makes them tick. I'm so excited today to welcome to the show Annette Alvarez-Peters. Annette is the founder of Annette AP, a consulting business focused on the wine and spirits industry, which she started in July of 2020. She retired from Costco Wholesale after nearly 37 years on the job, having spent the last 25 years of her tenure in the beverage alcohol department, culminating in the role of assistant vice president, general merchandise manager. She led a team in the United States with a global sales volume of approximately $4.8 billion. She is recognized globally as a top leader in the industry and also serves in advisory and mentorship roles for Wine Unify and Women of the Vine and Spirits. Annette, it's so good to see you. Welcome to Somlight. First off, where are you and how are you? I am in Reno, Nevada. That's where I relocated when I retired. And I'm doing great. I wish the world would open up so I could see all of my family and friends. But other than that, I'm doing great here. Well, thankfully, technology can connect us today. So we all know that there's some weird stuff that Costco sells. So I have three of those. And I'm gonna, I want you to tell me which one of these you actually own. And if you don't own them, which one would you want to own? Got it. So first up, we have the 93-inch ah. teddy bear. Yeah. You're nodding. I think that's the one you own. We have a full greenhouse. <laughs> and last but not least, the four-person wood sauna. <gasps> okay. Well. I wish I owned every single one of those. And you probably went in there with your little laundry list of you know, your groceries, you were picking up some meat and some cheese, maybe some bottles of wine. And that teddy bear was there and you bought it, didn't you? You had to have it in your cart. <laughs> I actually was like, I have to have the four person wood sauna. <laughs> well, I live in a condo now, so I can't have the greenhouse and I can't have the sauna. And I think that teddy bear would probably take up an entire room, so. Well, I'm gonna see if the wine commission, if we can get together and get you the <laughs> teddy bear to completely fill your apartment. So now that you live in Reno, you're gonna to have to gamble from time to time. You're gonna to have to go to the casinos. So when you go to the casino, what's the first table? What's your table? What's your jam? Yeah, none of it. That's my husband's jam. I go to the sports book and watch sports and have a you break watch too. sports. Yeah, why not? No, no, no betting, nothing. No. no cards, no poker, no laptop, No, nothing. I'd rather buy a handbag. I'd save my money and buy a handbag. So you, okay, you started at Costco in 1983 in San Diego, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. What was your first role there? And did you have any inkling at the time that you'd stay there for the next 37 years? I was 21 years old. I was working at a bank in San Diego. And my sister worked at it was then Price Club, and they had an opening in sales audit. And I was gonna take a little bit of a cut in pay. And she's like, it's a great company, it's a small company, but you should come on over, we need people. So I interviewed for it and I didn't get the job. And then they had another opening a couple of weeks later and I got that job. So that's where I started in sales audit. There was seven stores at the time. And- wow. No, it was going to be my job till I figured out what my real job was going to be. You quickly rose to the ranks, if I'm not mistaken. What, what were some of the things that you 
were selling and doing uh, with Costco in the in the early years? Yeah, so I, I was in sales audit and I thought I really wanted to be in merchandising. So a year later after sales audit, I took a job as a receptionist over in the hardline side of the business. And so I was a receptionist, then I became an admin. Then I decided I did want to get into the buying side and I became a reorder clerk and then an assistant buyer. And then in 1990, got promoted to buyer and I was buying telecommunications. So do you remember the big brick telephones, cellular phones? Yeah. Yeah, I bought those. How about five and a quarter floppy diskettes and three and a half floppy diskettes? Remember those? Oh yeah, man. I I remember floppy disks. Holy. I bought those. (laughs) And boom boxes. I got to buy boom boxes and Sony Walkmans. So those were the cool things I got to purchase. Uh, when this is I like a walk it. down like my junior high, like <laughs> <Totally>. hallway. <laughs> right? <laughs> Supplied by Annette. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to imagine that like if you're buying boom boxes and, you know, floppy disks and stuff, was there like um, the cool buyers that like got to buy the cool stuff? Was like alcohol and wine at that time, like something that Costco was focused on? And, and was it like, oh man, th- those guys get to buy the cool stuff? That was the food division that got where alcohol uh, is. That's where that department is. And uh, hardline side uh, was the electronics, uh, telecommunications, audio. So we thought we were cool or the cool. Oh, you were the cool kids. Yeah, okay. we were the cool kids. When I did You're go. The boom <laughs> when we did, when I did transfer over to um, the food and sundries department where alcohol is, then I thought I was really the coolest. So it just depends yeah. where you are. Then you just think you're cool. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that's a good life lesson. Wherever you are, you're cool. Sundries. So that, that's food and, and food and, and sundries. And food and that's sundries. What are, what are sundries? Uh, sundries is all the uh, non-elk beverages, uh, pet food, all the paper, toilet paper, paper towels, paper plates, foil, all that stuff. Yeah. That's sundries. So you, how did you end up in the, in the alcohol department? Oh, okay. So when Price Club and Costco merged, I moved up to Washington State and got the audio position uh, to be the buyer. And about 15, I think I was up there for 15 months and I was dating a guy and he lived in Orange County and I moved back to California after 15 months. And the position of alcohol beverage was open. And so I interviewed for that. And because I was already a buyer, I had a little bit of a leg up. I didn't know anything about the category. I did drink it, but that was pretty much how I got that job. Because I and think of my- was that? that? was in 1995. My interview was with David Sinegal, Jim Sinegal's, uh, who was the founder of uh, Costco. His son was running the LA division. He asked me, you know, do, do you drink, do you drink wine? Do you know anything about wine? I said, oh, uh, a little bit. It's always on the table when I go out to dinner. Do you know anything about beer? I drink a little bit, but I really don't like it. You kind of get bloated. Um, how about spirits? Uh, I drink vodka. That was pretty much my interview. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. That was my knowledge base. (laughs) But I did say, I promise you, I will figure out this category. 
I mean, was so I went to that because obviously in your time there, like you were promoted, you were promoted, you're promoted, you're moving up in the company, you know, obviously proving your chops at every step of the way. Like if you were to step outside yourself and look back at yourself in those days, what were the traits that you were exhibiting on the job that they were most drawn to and they were like, we need to really invest in this woman? I, I think it's, you know, people always tell you, you, you need to work hard. And I think that goes without saying, but what, what does that really mean? It really means for me anyways, to dig down and, and see what's needed for the company. How do you drive your sales? How do you keep improving? How do you do better? And it was always figuring out ways to, you know, be able to connect with the consumers, uh, be able to bring them what they need. And what I would do is I would talk to my friends uh, who were very experienced in, in the wine industry, or they collected wines and asked them questions of what should I be buying? How do I know they're going to like it? And, you know, there was a lot of trial and error. But I think by just being curious and trying to figure out what does the membership want, just got a a fire in my belly to want to do better, want to improve. And and then there was always times that it didn't work out so well. Uh, I remember getting a memo from Jim Senegal that I think it was in the late 90s. And it said, worst fine wine selection I've seen in five years. Well, if that's not a punch in the gut to do better, nothing else is. So I I think that the whole moral of that whole story was blow it all up, blow everything I'm doing up, start over, refocus and see if you can't do better. That's huge. And I I did it. So like, how did you do that? Because that's a, I mean, you're right. I can't imagine getting a note like that. That's, <laughs> that's your job and, and fine wine. You know, yeah, it pretty much told me I sucked. <laughs> so how did you respond to that? What, what, was the, what was the first few things you did? Um, well, first, after I think I fell off my chair and said, oh, I can't believe I'm doing such a crappy job. Okay. I said, let's get to work. So I, I actually blew up the memo like really big. And I put it on my bulletin board and then I put it on my staff's cubicle walls and said, we have to do better. Then I called every distributor in and they said, look what I just got. So we have to do better. What do you have? Because I'm going to blow everything up and I'm going to blow it up everywhere. So we're going to have some new selections. We're going to change this whole rotation out and we're going to find things that people like. I want to say it was like six weeks later, there was another grand opening that all of the executives came down to walk the buildings and it was a really good walk and we had really good selections and for probably a second, we were a superstar, my department for doing better. That's awesome. Well, I mean, what were some of those other early lessons? Cause like, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to being in a job where they're not ready for it. They maybe don't have the understanding of the category or the products in your case. And then it's like sink or swim, right? And that sounds like you were in that phase for a while. Like what were some of those lessons that you learned at that time that stuck with you for till today? Doing the right thing always, 
you know in your hearts of hearts if you're doing something right or you're doing something wrong. So always do the right thing. And that's part of Costco's culture that has to this day stuck with me. Always be learning, always be curious, ask a lot of questions. For the wine education, I didn't know anything. And, and I thought, you know, it's probably a good idea to learn more about wine and learn how to read Robert Parker that had zero photos in there in his newsletter. And so that's when I decided, hey, it's time to start taking some courses out there. I asked a couple of distributors and suppliers, hey, who wants to take some wine classes with me? And it was always one of those things where management would say um, for, to the buyers, say to the buyers, uh, try to be better or smarter than the person across your desk. So the way you're gonna do that is have knowledge. And by learning WSET and Society of Wine going through those courses, which, which I think was difficult, but it really helped me understand exactly what I was doing and to be a better buyer, be a better purchaser, and then be able to share that knowledge with my staff. You did lots of innovative things in your, your time with Costco. Companies either encourage risk or in creativity or they discourage it. It sounds like you were encouraged to, to be creative and, and rethink things. What were some of those aha moments that you remember where you wanted to take a risk and you were like, I don't know if this is going to work, but I, I feel that this could be beneficial to us. You know, one of the things learning was if you're not making mistakes, you're not doing your job. I mean, you have to make some mistakes every now and again. That's how you learn. But I, I think bringing on high-end spirits was one of the first. I didn't know if that was going to sell or not. I didn't know if people wanted Johnny Walker Blue. Uh, I didn't know if they uh, wanted higher-end whatever they were drinking, the, the top tier. So I brought in like 15 items just to see if they'd sell. And it blew out that following weekend. And I thought, oh my gosh, I guess people do want this. So that was a big learning lesson. You know, always force yourself and force those boundaries just to see. Don't always go big on it, but go big after itself and then keep bringing more in. When I was first learning about wine, my territory was the Los Angeles area. And the warehouse manager that was running Santa Maria at the time asked if I could bring in some Central Coast wines. I said, absolutely, I can do that. What are Central Coast wines? <laughs> and so he ended up giving me a laundry list of everything in the Central Coast, Santa Barbara, Paso Robles, and said, hey, can you bring in these brands? I said, absolutely, let's go big. Let's take a chance on this. And so we made a huge display of all these wines and they went gangbuster. Uh, so another, another thing that you just, sometimes you just got to figure things out. Like what is going to sell? What's in the market that people want to drink? And you just start taking some chances. And I think that's what I've always done in my career, trying to figure things out, always looking at what different retailers are doing and think to yourself, how can I, how can I possibly do that a little bit better and the way Costco would do it. And that's kind of what I tried to do all throughout my career. What's the way Costco would do it? What, is, what does that translate to? 
they're very disciplined and structured on how many items you can bring in. It's a very limited selection. Price points need to be thought about. You have to bring value at, at every level. You, you can't let anyone cheat you. And what I say about that is because the, the margin structure was always lower, is lower at Costco. And sometimes I think suppliers or distributors might want to play games where they charge you a little bit higher so that retail is at where other people are. And you just, you can't do that because it's cheating. And if you know that's happening, you, you have to walk away from that. And so sometimes, you know, there, there's times where you just have to walk away from items that you really want to carry, but you can't. Now you developed over a hundred wine spirit items mm -hmm. uh, for Costco's private label Kirkland uh, signature. Mm -hmm. Of those, which ones are you most proud of and why? Ooh. That was a big business. Uh, most proud. I, I think all of them. I, I, I really do. I mean, uh, to name a few, the champagne, I think that's a great value every day at, at 20 bucks. I mean, you can't go wrong. With that, the Chateauneuf de Pop, we had a great supplier uh, for a long time until they got sold. And then we found another producer and their wine is just stunning. The Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand constantly gets best buys and it's just such a great drinking porch pounder for every day. Now, um, now walk us through that. Do you, do you start with the idea? Okay, I want to do... A Sauvignon Blanc, and then you look around the world and say, "Okay, where do I want the Sauvignon Blanc to be from?" And then, do you did you get on a plane, go to, in this case, you said uh, South Africa, right, uh, and start meeting with producers, uh, New Zealand, sorry, and 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 start having those conversations. And were you traveling all the time and meeting these people face to face in their countries? Funny that we're talking about New Zealand. That was the only one I didn't get to. But all the other ones, <laughs> but all the other ones, yes. Um, you know, we had to do our due diligence. You have to check out the supplier. You have to make sure, um, you know, they're they're following their controls. You have to inspect their facilities. Are they doing the right thing at every level of the supply chain? But you but you start with the bigger picture when you're developing on what is selling. What what are the members looking for? what's going to bring some volume to the business. And then also what's going to be a category that maybe is higher in price that you can actually show a value to a member where they would pick up that particular item. An example there is Oakville. We were doing a project for Oakville Cabernet out of Napa Valley. And I asked the producer, you know, not that I don't want this wine, and this juice, but why are you selling it to us? Because I was just curious why they were selling. And his response was kind of remarkable in that, you know, we need people to drink Oakville and Oakville Cabernet. So by you selling it under your Kirkland signature, this gives people oppor the opportunity to figure out one, do I like it? And then two, if I do like it, I'll probably buy other producers. And that was a way 
for us to introduce different countries, different varietals, different appellations to the member base. Are you a risk taker? I mean, is that something that is important in, in the business you're in? And, and has that been something that has led you through your life? I don't know if I've ever called it a risk taker. I like to do or be challenged, I guess. How do you answer that one, David? <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like it seems like to me. Yes, I mean, I guess. Maybe, maybe there's that line, right? Where it's like, you want to do something creative, so therefore you're going to take a risk because mm-hmm. there's money, there's time, your reputation's involved too, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know you that well, but you always come across as very carefree, light, but underneath that, I know that you have a laser sharp understanding of the business. Mm -hmm. So is it sort of like that calculated risk where you know you want to do something creative, but you're going to kind of game it all out before you go all in? Yeah. And I think, I think you just kind of realize if it doesn't work out, how much damage are you going to do? And, and if you can assess that, that What's the worst thing that can happen if I do this? Then you take that chance. Because I bet, nine, I bet nine times out of 10, you won't get yourself in trouble. Do you feel like you learn more from some of those failures than some of the successes? Oh, I think you're always learning. But yeah, for sure. When, when you just tell yourself, wow, I really effed that one up big. <laughs> I hope I never do that again. <laughs> What's an example of that? Oh, gosh, where do you start? Um, let's see. When I was in the, the LA office, I remember buying, um, Corbell had this magnum of champagne and I don't remember who the artist was and we bought a ton of it. And it sold like gangbusters. And then there was another one by another artist that I thought, oh, that totally has to sell because the last one did. Biggest bomb on earth. (laughs) And I remember my boss, uh, I think I put it in a raffle sale or something, the original sample. And he put it back on my desk and said, you know, you should always just keep this as your trophy item because you need to learn that that was not successful. And just Why stare at it every day. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It just it's didn't want to sell. Sometimes. It's fleeting sometimes, right? It's like, yeah. you never know. Well, yeah. Okay. Let, let, let me ask you this. Because Costco retailers, sommeliers, they understand human nature. They understand what gets people's attention, right? How does that factor in for you? Like, if you look at some of these bigger successes, like, what was it that people were most excited about that are maybe not wine geeks, for instance, like, was it the way you marketed it? Was it the way it was on display? Was it the price? Like what at the, at the root of like human desire for these products, what have you found is most important? I I think in America, a lot of people gravitate towards scores or, or they gravitate towards a number. It doesn't even matter sometimes to a lot of people who that critic was, who rated whatever wine. And, and I only know that because someone would, would say, well, it got 90 points, it has to be good. Uh, and I'd ask the question, well, who gave it 90 points? Well, I don't know, got 90 points. Okay. 
Um, so I, I think America does like scores. They like a number. They might not even like that varietal or that particular country, but they saw it got 90 points. So I, I, I think there's a couple of factors on why some things sell. Uh, it could be the packaging. It could be, you know, during the holidays, if you're going out there right now, you'll see a lot of large format bottles, three liters and, and mags of, you know, champagne or, or high-end wines. I think the attractiveness of that, where you could bring that to someone's home or have it at your house and serve your guests. Like I got this big three liter, look how cool this is that I bought at Costco. I think some of those things, so it's, it's that, wow, what is that? The way it's displayed at Costco, it's always on pallets. So how does that translate? We used to call it the five by five rule. You need to be able to identify that product five feet away in five seconds. So a member will either figure it out if they want it or not want it, or if they walk by it. So they're either going to go up to it or walk by it. And there's something about it that they walk up to it. Yeah. So what, How what is that? Could it could be the price point. It could yeah. be just the, the packaging itself. But one of the, the great things about Costco, and, and you probably know this by shopping there, nothing's, there, there, there's no wording on the aisles to say what's in that aisle. It's just a number. And they move product all the time for you so that you walk all over the building to try to figure out where is, where's that bourbon that I get all the time. It's not where it's supposed to be. Well, it might be on end cap, might be in a seasonal aisle, but they do it on purpose to make you walk around and make you look. If Costco can get anybody to walk up and down every single aisle, they've done their job. It sounds like a casino. Isn't that great? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what do you think? Like, okay, we we live we live and breathe in a, a, a different part of the wine world than most people in the world, right? Most wine consumers. Mm-hmm. What is it about the general public that you want quote unquote wine people to most understand about the general public that they don't seem to get? Probably that everybody has a different palate and people gravitate towards different types of wine and that we should never, ever poo-poo whatever anybody is drinking. I like to say, hey, my mom still drinks white Zinfandel, but you know what? Good for her. She still, she still is drinking wine. I happen to like Bordeaux a lot. And if I'm drinking a classified growth, I probably won't serve it to my mother because I know she won't like it. So I think there's just such a wide range and we should all encourage everybody out there to find something that they like. I've had many of my friends tell me that I don't drink wine. I don't like it. I said, no, I I don't think that's true. I think you just haven't found a wine that you liked, but by certain questioning, I'd go through to try to figure out what they like, what they like to drink outside of alcohol. And then I would find them something. And they would say, wow, I like this wine. Well, yeah, I told you, you do like wine. I think everyone likes wine. You just have to find something that they like. So I I think that's probably it. Just get 
you know, we have to understand everybody has a different preference of different varietals, different countries, different styles, and, and never poo-poo it. And also like make it fun, right? I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to like read, read a 1000 page book on wine to appreciate wine. You know, you know it's like, I, I feel like the wine world takes itself just way too seriously sometimes. And I think it's our own worst enemy. It, it, you know, and I feel like if you can make wine accessible and, and make people feel good about it, because so much of what you just said to me about the scores, it seems like, you know, people are nervous. They don't want to make the wrong decision and they want some support that they're going to make a good decision. So why have we made it so hard? <laughs> like, why have we intimidated people to the point where they're scared of wine? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if, if we could take all of that out of the equation, it would be a lot friendlier world. And, and you do, you know, people have to, they, they are, I think, intimidated. They don't want to uh, make the wrong decision. They don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to waste their money. So it, it does become difficult. And I know I, I try to share a lot of wines with a lot of my friends. And, and of course, you know, they, they'd say, well, where do you get that? Well, I got it at Costco, of course. Do you still have it? No, I bought that five years ago or 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, well, I can't buy it now. He said, I know, I know, I'm sorry. But, you know, I, I think we can find you something that you're going to like. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, a funny, it's a funny industry, isn't it? And we kind of have to try to make it a little bit easier, a little bit more accessible to people that it, just break down those barriers. And I think we can get there. It's just, I think with the new generation coming up, the younger generation and what millennials drink and why they like certain things, I think they're gonna bring a lot of energy to the wine world and, and maybe be able to bring a lot more consumers into the category because I don't think they're, not that they're not serious, they are serious, but I think they try to make it fun and lively. And I think that's what this world sometimes needs. Support your state one sip at a time and drink for Washington. The wine the world is talking about is farmed and made by families right here. Now they need your help. So sip a cab or chill with rosé. However you enjoy wine, just make it a Washington wine. Raise a glass, support your local wineries, and drink for Washington. Brought to you by the farmers and families of Washington Wine, who encourage you to sip responsibly. Mentorship has been a huge part of your career. Mm -hmm. And particularly now, I mean, you're involved with some amazing organizations that are making paths for the next generation to come up you know, in, in this industry. Why is that important to you? I had so much help from so many different people, whether they were distributors, suppliers, masters of wine, master psalms, helped me in my career when I didn't know anything. And I just, I just think it's so important to pay it forward. So if I can help any individual and guide them through the do this or don't do that, or help them with contacts or referrals. I think there's nothing better than that to give back.
self-confidence is an absolutely necessary skill to success. How did that develop for you? Have you always had an internal confidence or is that something that you've had to develop? And then how do you encourage people that you're mentoring to find that in themselves? Yeah, it's hard. No, I was not always confident or self-confident. I didn't have that. I didn't go to college. So that was always a thing for me. And, you know, it, it would come up in conversation that, you know, just a general conversation. I don't think people meant anything by it, but hey, where'd you go to school? Mm, I didn't. And I finally got over that. And I think that's why I wanted to do the whole wine education, just so I had something. But it it's hard because self-confidence is, it's an attitude about your skills and your ability and believing in yourself. And if you don't believe in yourself, how's anybody else gonna believe in you? But I think you have to force yourself to not listen to what I like to call that itty bitty shitty committee that likes to talk to you and tell you negative things. I'm really not paying attention to that. And, and know that you're smarter than you think you are. And you have capabilities that can get you places. You just have to force yourself to put one foot in front of the other. You might fail, you might cry, you might curse, but it's all, it's all okay. Um, but you have to force yourself to know and believe in yourself because there's no other way. There's no other way to do it. Was there a time where you, as you were finding your own confidence in this, I mean, I love that you were put in this category with zero knowledge. <laughs> you liked wine, you didn't like beer. And all of a sudden you're one of the biggest buyers of alcohol beverages on the planet. It, was there a time as you were in that journey where you stopped and you went, whoa, I actually feel really comfortable now in what I'm doing? Or was there always that uncomfortableness and that like fear of making a mistake that was driving you? I don't know if I ever said, wow, I feel really comfortable in this role because I, I always challenge myself to do better and then challenge the suppliers to do better, challenge my teams to do better. So uh, I, I don't know if it was a comfort level, but, but maybe I found myself being able to mentor my teams and mentor more people around me that probably put me in that situation where, okay, maybe I am confident about my abilities where I can affect other people and help them on their journey to reach whatever goals they want to do and just help them along the way. So I, 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 don't, I don't know if I ever really looked at it that way for myself, though. I mean, you, you know, it's like people think about your role and there's probably a lot of people that don't understand your role and all that. Like, you know, you were a massive buyer, but underneath your position was all these other teams. So you're not only outwardly facing to the industry, but internally, there's a lot of people that are under your purview, so to speak. And you're in a leadership role to them. Like you had to also learn about being a leader and inspiring. What were some of the things that you focused on that you were like, this, this is how I can get really good results from people. 
I think the biggest is letting go of control because that's so hard for people to let go of control, I think. And, and I think that was a hard lesson for me as well. But in an effort for people to learn, you have to let them do, you have to let them make mistakes. I, I would do, I would ask my staff when they wanted to do something and maybe I thought it was not the right thing to do. Are you sure you want to do that? Do you really love that? So that was kind of releasing control. As long as they were 100 100% on board of what they loved or really liked, then you know what? Then it was it was something that they had to do, whether I believed it or not. I hoped that I would guide them in the right direction. And I would also, if they were right, where I thought where I thought they were going to be wrong, I would apologize for saying. I made the mistake because I think you have to own up to that kind of stuff too. Where's that line for you when you're encouraging them and putting pressure on them, but not putting so much pressure on them that you kill their spirit? You know, how do you put pressure on people to be better while still bringing them up? Yeah, I, I think it's about making sure that they thought through the entire process. And by doing that, you have to ask those questions. Did you think of this? Did you think of that? If you were asked this question, would you be able to respond? And I think once you go through all of that and you can feel comfortable that they did their due diligence, then I think that's where that line is. That's, that's what a guy I used to work, work for would tell us as you know, we were managers in, in the restaurant industry and say, look, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to make decisions that I don't like. <laughs> and that failed. But if you can tell me afterwards what your thought process was to make that decision, and that's a sound thought process, I'll support the failure, the success, whatever. For him, it was all about you know, the thought process behind it. Are you taking the time? And it sounds like that's what you're saying too. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Take the time to think through it. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you approach your life that way? Because again, like how important was it for you as you were coming up to, you know, envision where you wanted to go? So many people talk about, you know, you can't really strive for, you know, unless you're envisioning for yourself that you can be better, you can be greater. You won't get there. Is that something that's, comes natural for you and that you think's been important for you? I don't know if it came natural for me. I, I think, I think just my upbringing has with my, my father was in the military and quite strict on all of um, the ch his children. That was just something I just kind of always had in me. But I remember I started doing vision boards um, where I wanted to be. And I started maybe doing that five or six years ago, I guess, on where I wanted to be and how was I going to get there? I'm a very visual person. And so having a vision board and having it in my office, and then also I had one um, in my bathroom where I was getting ready that I would look at it. I think that helped me achieve my goals on where did I want to go? 
and I, you know, just put some different words up there or uh, inspiration quotes or what have you on this board. And I think ever since I started doing that, I was really able to focus in on what I wanted to achieve and where I wanted to go. What's been the most powerful thing in your vision board? Setting myself up to retire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it did. I, I remember it had, it was, there was Reno. There was a photo of Reno. There was fishing. There was hiking. There was wine tasting. There was baseball. Uh, one of the things I want to do is when the world opens up again, go to every baseball park. But I had all of those things on my board for retirement. Well, what am I going to do for retirement? When, when I do retire, my husband had been retired already. But what is, what is some of the things that maybe I missed out on because I was working or traveling and that I was actually going to do? What role has uh, curiosity played in your life? Oh, always. I was always curious, always asking why, 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 where I think some people probably wanted to punch me in the throat because I kept asking questions, but always, I, I've always been very curious. And I think if you're a merchant, you have to be curious about everything. I think that helps you along with your career. Now you're involved with Wine Unify. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a, a great organization to, to mentor the next generation. Tell us about Wine Unify. Oh, it's, it's really cool. And a great group of people that have put it together that are on the board. I'm on their advisory board and also a mentor. But, you know, it's, it's really to celebrate the diversity in the wine business. Welcome those that have an interest in the business as well elevate those, elevate their careers, and then amplify, amplify those voices of those underrepresented minorities. And, and I just think, you know, by having this organ, being involved in this organization and supporting where we can give them uh, education scholarships and mentorships, you know, it, it's just such a great feeling. We just did level two WESIT round of scholarships. So I'll be getting two mentors shortly. And I'm like so excited um, to be able to have two mentees uh, under, under me. And so I, I just think there's is such a great organization and you know it's very top of mind for many, many companies um, that we really need to move forward on figuring out how, how do we get, how do we become a more diverse industry? What are the first three lessons that you want to pass on to your mentees? Ah, always be learning, be curious and be humble. Always be humble. Those are great lessons. Okay. We're going to do the Psalm light rapid fire challenge. Oh boy. Are you ready? Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Can I have a glass of wine for that? <laughs> oh, you should be drinking the wine the whole time. <laughs> I know, I know, I am. I am, I am. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> no. I'm waiting for it. Uh, do you collect anything? I do. I collect wine and I collect handbags. How many handbags do you have? Is my husband watching this? Um, <laughs> 
Never. No. I, I, I probably have about 200. 200 handbags. What's yeah. your favorite handbag? Oh, maybe, maybe my Chanel, maybe my Dior. What, what color is it? I'm not a handbag guy, so what? Sell me on this handbag. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I want to be quilted. a handbag guy. <laughs> it's beautiful, quilted, black. It's got these large chains on it. It's just, you smell it. This leather smells so good. You got to have one, David. <laughs> I need to spend some time with the handbags, you know, really get to know them yeah. wherever yeah. I'm uh, what's one thing that you'll never do again? Go along the Oakville grade in Napa. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> I get carsick. Okay. <laughs> Every time I've taken it, I've gotten carsick. And I always say I'll never do it again. And I've done it. And done. I'm always sick. <laughs> what's something you hate that everyone else loves? Swimming in the ocean. You do? Yeah. And I'm San Diego. I'll go into the water to my waist. No, I got I got caught in a riptide when I was in ninth grade and it freaked me out. And oh, so yeah. that would do it. So I don't like really particularly like the ocean. But everybody where do you find where do you find your inspiration? Everywhere. Magazines, walking around, uh, looking at anything and everything from people, having conversations with people everywhere, I guess. I love that answer. What strange or irrational fear do you have? So you know how the space needle put that glass bottom up on the top? Yeah, I'll never stand on that. Not going on it? No. Mm -mm. <laughs> that stuff freaks me out. Uh -uh. <laughs> I hate those too. I hate those too. The one that I that I will never go on. Have you seen that one that goes out on the Grand Canyon? It like sticks out over the edge. Yeah, of the no, Grand I'll never. No, I'll never go on that. No. I've seen like TikTok videos of people on those, and they're like they're like super. You know, their body gets all contorted and they're shaking. I'm like, that would totally be me. Yeah. No, not doing. I can't. That. I hear you. No, I hear you. Those are terrifying. It should not exist. No. Exactly. <laughs> no glass floors. <laughs> What's the best purchase you've ever made? Best purchase. And I know you just thought that Chanel handbag. I know you did. It could be. It could, it could be. be. <laughs> where where did where did you find said Chanel handbag? Where were you in the country in the world? At Costco. <laughs> At Costco. Yes. <laughs> it all comes back. What game are you good at? I don't, I don't think I'm very good at very many games. <laughs> Terrible. You're not a game, game type person. No. We well, don't play the casino. You go right to the sports. Yeah. Because I, go I don't think I'm, I'm not. No. No. I can't think of one. No games. Don't, no. don't forget no. the board games at your house. <laughs> I'm good at drinking games, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that is important. That is important. Not to be underrated. Do you have any pet peeves when you're dining out in a restaurant? Yeah, because I can never order off the menu. <laughs> I always want to change what's ever there. Can I have it without this? Can you put this on the side? Can, And so my husband will say, will you for once, just one time, order the way it is? Well, sometimes I don't like this part of it or I don't like that part of it. <laughs> I don't know. That's a lot. Put everything on the side. 
you, you tell your husband you are allowed to have as many handbags as you want and you can order off the menu how you like. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay. You knew this was coming. We're going to do the, the psalm light drawing challenge. So we're going to okay. get, get out your uh, pen and paper. Okay. All right. I have it. You ready? Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. okay. So I'm going to have you draw. Let's do this. Let's have you draw two handbags of your favorites while telling us about the wines of Sicily. And you have 45 seconds. Sicily? Yeah. Okay, so the wines of Sicily, they're great. It's in Italy, if you didn't know where that's at. And, um, okay, wait. You know what? I can't draw and talk at the same time. Is that like drinking and eating and doing all this? And and are yeah, we still, did I even say anything about? <laughs> Sicily is in Italy. That's been established. Did I tell you I suck at games? <laughs> you did. You did. You did tell me that. Yeah. I did, right? And so <laughs> this is stupid. Um, <laughs> This handbag hand better be amazing because I know nothing about Italy. <laughs> about Sicily, I know nothing. I know nothing. They're red wines. I didn't even, I didn't even say that because I was focused on drawing. <laughs> those look good already. Get those okay, up. This is a stupid game. <laughs> look at this. Well, clearly you put all the attention on the handbags. and I know, I did. I did. Sorry. Sorry, world of wine. Oh. Let me see those again. Those look at that. That's a that's like a that's like a fashion drawing. I can see the buckles. Mm -hmm. I can see the texture of the fabric. You even got the Dior on there. That's <laughs> that's pretty good. I'd rather know about the handbags than Sicily anyway. Yeah, I need to practice on that one. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a Zoom next week and we'll just run through a bunch. Yeah. And get you all. Oh. Get you all trained up. Okay. Last question. You know, you you lived in Washington mm -hmm. for a very long time and. You've spent a lot of time in this industry. You've got incredible marketing prowess. You have your own company now. If you were to consult the state of Washington <laughs> and say, you know, this is where your story is strongest. This is where you guys should lean into the world. Because again, you have a worldly knowledge of, of, of wine and where Washington fits in that. What, what's the best foot forward that, that Washington should, should go with? You know, I think it's the diversity of all the varietals that are grown there and, and they're fabulous, right? And they're, they're entry level to, to high end and the, the wines are beautiful. They have such great freshness and great acidity that I don't think the world knows about. I think that people have to get out there. All the producers have to get out there and tell their story and connect with people. Because if you're not working the market, and I know this year is a, a little difficult, but if you're not out there working the market, it's gonna be very difficult for people to know who you are. And so that's probably my biggest advice is to get out there, get out of your own little space and get out there and see the world and, and taste them on your wine because they're delicious. When they have a customer in front of them, right? let's say that they get out in the market and they're meeting with a sommelier or a buyer, mm -hmm. uh, you know, somebody like you, for instance, like if, if they were to sit down with you and they've got two minutes with you, mm -hmm. right. 
what do you advise them to, to focus on to, to get the most attention? I think it has to be compelling. So what's your story? What's so cool about you that the world needs to know about? Tell me something that I don't know. Tell me a little bit about where it's grown and why it's special. And then give me an awesome price point on it. <laughs> Maybe a deal. <laughs> I love it. And uh, thank you so much. I mean, it, it's such a, I know you're, you're so busy and it's such a joy to sit to here to get, talk with you and hear more about your story and everything you're doing to inspire the next generation and to pass it on. It's just so inspiring. So, you know, thank you again. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay healthy. This has been Psalm Light. Catch you guys next week with some of our other favorite beverage pros from around the country. Cheers.